Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climate Ambrose. I'm James Hurley, Enterprise Editor at The Times, and I'll be your host for this series. From startup to sale, the course of building a business never did run smooth. And in this series, we go behind the scenes, exploring the highs and lows which come with building a business at every stage of the journey. Today's guest has skills ranging from martial arts and evasive driving. No, not the latest candidate for the next James Bond, but Kate Bright, founder of security venture Umbra International. Security really boils down to common sense and the ability to create relationships, sometimes really super quickly. And that was something that I'd noticed that I was becoming quite agile at. I've got lots of failings, but these are the things that I was really sort of focused on in developing my professional career. Kate spent 15 years working as an executive assistant and chief of staff to wealthy individuals and families. As the right-hand woman to high-profile people, she saw an opportunity to build a security and concierge business that could take care of various aspects of their lives. From here, she undertook 160 hours of close protection training, picking up what Liam Neeson, I think, once called a very particular set of skills. And in 2015, she founded Umbra International, what's become a global security recruitment and concierge firm. Kate, welcome. Thanks, James. It's always a bit of an out-of-body experience when you start with uh, with James Bond, particularly as uh, for those that have watched it, there, there is an ending that does suggest that there could be a, a, a sort of a, a female angle. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was exactly my thought, Kate, when, uh, when, when I was researching you that I thought, I wonder if this might be a segue for a career change for you. Well, I, I think I think that's possibly not what my clients would uh, would want. And, and I hate to dispel the myths right at the start. But um, sadly, I'm, I'm just a 43 year old woman who is working in the security industry, I'm afraid. So uh, I'll let you know if I get the call up because that would be very exciting. Well, please do. I'm really interested in hearing how you got here because it's always fascinating to me to understand how entrepreneurs end up doing what they do. And, you know, it's probably more kind of common for someone to start something like a restaurant or an accountancy or law firm or something like that. So when I come across a business like yours, I always wonder, well, how did you get here? So I guess the first step on your Umbra journey was working as an executive assistant, wasn't it? Why did that world appeal to, to you in the first place? Or did you just sort of fall into that? So tell us a little bit about how you ended up working in that world. So, so I've always said that my my journey to security was completely sort of unconventional or accidental is a sort of probably a, a more positive word. But I left at university. I'd studied French at university. And honestly, uh, it was the lady in the, the, the lovely lady in the career service who handed me a, a list of PA recruitment agencies when I was leaving Royal Holloway. I think she thought because I had a sort of multitasking sort of various skills that I'd sort of developed over over my time and, and and the French as well. I think there was a lot of demand, particularly in the sort of 2000, 2001, when I graduated for those sort of language skills and sort of the, the, the European kind of landscape at that time and, and, and the business landscape at that time. I didn't really know what a PA was, but I'd done some support work when I'd been at university. I'd had some sort of summer jobs and things like that. And, and really, actually, I mean, the, the the part of the degree that I did was uh, uh, there was a marketing minor part of the the sort of marketing course that I did. So I did French with management. So I actually thought I was going to just sort of do a few little PA jobs and then end up working in, in marketing. Actually, that was the sort of the original plan. But I think right from day one, when I worked for the first person I ever worked for, the business was being acquired by Disney at the time. And so we were working as a team of five of us in the CEO's office. It was fast paced. We were getting things thrown at us left, right and centre. I'm of that era that uh, maybe the internet was just about being uh, invented at that time. So we had to be really inventive, 
very quick on our feet, really organized, using all the tricks and tips at our disposal to get this CEO's life in, in ship shape order. And I think it really, it really struck me right from that sort of day one, working with that team of five assistants, that I wanted to work at this sort of level, that pace, seeing things that were happening at very high level. There was a sort of real discretion and the trust that was placed in myself and the team. So really from there, it was, it was a matter of time before I went to work for another individual. And actually that was more of a family setup. So we, t- we could talk about private offices and family offices. And I was working again before the, the actual terminology was invented. I'm making myself sound really old here, but um, I'm really not. But uh, the private office and the family office was, was just sort of starting to take shape. Uh, that The organizations that manage the lives of these sort of high profile and high, high net worth individuals. And really I was hooked, James, to be honest with you, there was never really a question for me that I wasn't going to continue what I was doing. I saw that in that world, there'd be such an opportunity, particularly for majority female PAs, that that is the sort of your stereotype. And we'll come on to, to stereotypes. I think stereotypes seem to be following me in my, my career everywhere I go. But I wanted to change the stereotype that you just could could actually progress within your PA career path. And it was due to some amazing people actually within the security teams that I started working with that I progressed to then chief of staff and, and actually saw the security function firsthand. And I was actually managing the teams and it was just great fun. And actually I saw that the importance of security, particularly throughout the sort of uh, 2000, 2010, 2015, that decade from the millennium to, to 2010, it was actually the dawn of a lot of the, the internet. A lot of the protection of my clients was actually being done by myself in terms of their reputation and, being their gatekeeper. So I, I always say that I think my my bodyguard career started from the moment that I took my, my first PA job because you're protecting someone's time, you're protecting someone's reputation, you're protecting everything about how their career is progressing alongside your own. So um, it was only a matter of time really before I was working increasingly with the security teams that I was just so intrigued that I wanted to do the training. So so that, that really was the unconventional yet so totally to me uh, organic way that it that it all took shape. And uh, what's your family background like, Kate? The reason I ask that is I wonder what was it like sort of going into those kind of, as you say, high flying, quite sort of rarefied world in a way of, of, you know, successful chief executives. And as you say, family offices, was that was that a gear change for you? Or did you sort of just t- take to that, like, you know, sort of duck to water? So in terms of my upbringing, I mean, my, both my parents are like, I think of myself as, as slightly rebellious. But my my father um, came from very, very humble uh, upbringings, uh, raised, born and raised in Dagenham. He and his five siblings all got apprenticeships, all went to work in engineering, very hands on, very sort of boots on the ground professions. My mother similarly worked as a bank teller before she she raised four of us. And I think my family upbringing in an Irish Bavarian, very loud household was very, very grounded and still is very, very grounded. And I think as I started to progress through the sorts of clients and families and family setups that I worked for, I was always, and I am always very grateful for that, that grounding. And I think it's funny because it's very common that people might feel like they are part of that setup, that they are part of this extraordinary world that is a sort of a peek into another world. But I think the, the, the more successful colleagues and friends that I work with, we're the ones who understand that we're not from that world and we're working within it. Uh, and so I think that grounding that I had growing up was actually quite essential to being able to work within 
the sort of client environments and the sort of their family setups, knowing that I was somebody that was working in those environments was, I think, something that became a bit of a, a superpower, I guess. And I think also that difference in my background was always something and is always something that I will weave into the conversations and the relationships that I build with my clients, because they're asking as much about my background and the background of those that protect them as they are taking what they see as their lives as being uh, totally normal. And I think also increasingly we're working with more entrepreneurial clients who have had great ideas or started from very humble upbringings themselves. So it's, for me, it's really interesting to see and really, uh, you know, working at that sort of right hand for the last 22 years, it's been very interesting for me to see how people succeed what they do to succeed, but also the importance for me of being able to retain that sort of very pragmatic, very logical, very grounded approach to my own life. Uh, I think it would have been easy for me to go into a different sort of mindset around that. But I think that that's something that um, I always used to to enjoy getting on the, the 137 bus from Mayfair back to, to my home in southwest London. For me, that was a, a real grounding point. And I still sometimes now jump on just to just to sort of make sure I kind of get on the bus, ring my parents, because the world of the private clients that we work with is so fast paced, is so different, that I think you bring your difference to the table by not forgetting where you come from and what difference you bring to the table. That's very interesting, Kate. And I think we've got something in common there because uh, my Irish granddad worked at Dagenham Ford and I was uh, brought up just, just down the road from you. So good to see oh, someone. My father worked at Ford. Yeah, yeah. there we go. <laughs> so yeah. it's good to see someone in the extended family doing doing so well. And tell me about what what it was that you saw, I suppose, in uh, when you were working in, in those environments that made you think you could do security better. What was missing? that do you think that you saw that created a gap in the market? I think for me, it wasn't seeing what was different. It was actually understanding that I was so, so useful by being who I was myself, i.e. the PA experience, the logistics, the operations, the sort of administrative experience that, that I had. Because I was so useful within the teams and the teams would say, you know, without you, Brighty, you know, we haven't got... Uh, somebody to organize and smooth the way for preparation to go on a trip, preparation for logistics within London, knowing the people and the places and the faces, just that little bit of extra detail, attention to detail, which security really boils down to common sense and the ability to create relationships sometimes really super quickly. And that was something that I'd noticed that I was becoming quite agile. At. I've got lots of failings, but these are the things that I was really sort of focused on in developing my professional career. Because don't forget, a PA isn't, isn't necessarily somebody who is fast-tracked for promotions and career progression. So you have to kind of do it yourself. The invention was the mother of necessity. I think that's the, that's the saying. But um, for me, it was always finding ways I could do more, embed myself more with the team. And then it was the head of security that said to me, look, you know, to be even more useful, you should go and do the close protection training. I think you'd enjoy it. It would be something that would give you a bit more of a sort of understanding and a grounding of, you know, why we're so annoying asking about forward planning and why we're asking certain questions and a bit of the terminology and also understanding just a bit, a bit more about when to 
use physical force all those those nuances that you you don't really know exist within the close protection the bodyguard function so for me it was the opposite way around it was actually I was doing the job before I knew I was doing the job because I was working with the teams and then the formal accreditation if you like and getting my license was was the next logical step which was uh, one of the most incredible bits of training that I've ever done. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that training? Because, you know, 160 hours of close protection training, most of us have got no idea what that's like or what it involves. Can you give us a little bit of a flavour of your experience of that and, and some of the skills that you picked up? Sure. Well, I think, again, about sort of misconceptions about what bodyguard training is. And I think um, if we unpick it from the point of view that a lot of the security industry in close protection does come from a military background. And, and that's great because you've, you've got a, a baseline and a, an assumption of skill sets that come into the industry, which is brilliant. The actual training itself is less focused on things that you would think, like the sort of physical side of things. There, there was, in, in those days when I did it, what's called a hard target combat training section. So a bit of a distilled version of Israeli martial arts, Krav Maga, which I really enjoyed. And I went on to kind of do a more of a, a sort of in-depth sessions on, which was not part of the core course. But fast forward to today, the core course, I mean, a lot of it centers around planning and understanding the theoretical side of protection, when to step in, when not to step in. You can do additional components around things like first aid. The more training that you do, the better. The 160 hours is really your sort of your basic starting point. And every hour that you do after your basic training then counts towards your development. And a bit like when you're doing your um, sailing training, you know, you keep your logbook. That's very much the mindset. And, and if you think also a lot of ex-military men and women, um, they don't just stop with one course. You know, the CVs are some of the, the men and women that we work with. Their um, certification and skill sets, the bullet points just go on for pages and pages and pages because that's been their inherent understanding of life is learning so for me that 160 hours just basically sparked in me this desire to learn more but certainly um things like the the first day training the logistics the planning exercises right from day one you're going out with a pretend principle that you're protecting and i really enjoyed every aspect of it because as i say it was basically what i've been doing with the teams um but in in a more formalized an orderly way and understanding why the terminology uh you know why, why the sort of advanced party or recce or all those different parts to the sort of logistics puzzle, why they were so important. And actually, right from day one on my course, how important it is to, to get outside of the mindset that you have to come from a certain background to do any sort of training. Because if you're sat at the front of a classroom doing a close protection course as a PA, I'm telling you now, there are going to be questions that you ask that no one else is going to ask, but that other people will learn from, from your lived experience working with the same clients, but in a different capacity. So for me, the course was um, a starting point for me, a, a, a very much a kind of a menu of the different things that you would think are, are comprising the actual close protection role. And then I went on to do additional training and things like evasive driving. Um, I did my advanced driver training recently. Um, so I've, I've definitely, I caught the bug uh, when I did the actual license itself. I keep it renewed every year. There are certain skills that you have to update so that you don't get skills fade. And I know a lot of people during the pandemic who weren't actually operational when they came back were very keen to, you know, make sure that their skills were brushed up, particularly around things like pediatric first aid. A lot of the um, private client close protection community are working with families, you know, knowing how to look after and protect a family 
particularly in a world post-COVID, is going to be much more about the health and safety of your clients. So um, it's what I say to a lot of the younger men and women that are coming through into the industry is just get as many skills as possible. But health and safety are now going to be intrinsically linked. And so if you can kind of amplify those skills, then you, you know, you'll be standing in good stead. Because if I was a client and I saw a CV of someone that could uh, potentially step in in the case of something going wrong and also look after my children it's a no-brainer you've mentioned stereotypes earlier in the conversation Kate and also the fact that a lot of people in your industry are ex-military aren't they and I think close to about 90% of the sector is male as, as a female bodyguard do women have any particular advantages in in the field do you think uh, in close protection I'm just geeking out for a minute 5.75% of license holders are female. So in the overall security industry, it's 10%. The role of women and the role having, and, and still am operational where required, it's really interesting that, that there may be this, this sort of misconception that women are only working with female clients or women are only working with the children, for example, you know, doubling up or, or, or being able to sort of blend in in that, in that way. But I think overall, from my own personal experience, I think the layering of security is much more efficient when you are a diverse team. And that's mixed genders, that's mixed physical attributes as, as a sort of a, a, in the whole broader spectrum. But women specifically, I think there's something that I learned on the course. Um, we were doing a, a mock exercise in a sort of night environment, nightclub environment, and that simply by using your own physical sort of presence that you can diffuse situations before they even sort of take place. So we were in an actual um, uh, central London venue and I could see that there were a, a, there was a little bit of a sort of a, a gathering and a group around our pretend principle that we were sort of protecting. And I simply walked near to that group. And I think because there was a different presence and a different sort of dynamic that I created, the whole situation kind of diffused itself. So I think I think it's it's not just about what women bring to the party. I think when you... When you work in a team that's got all these different skills, all this different physical sort of presentation, then you really are the, the essence of what we call invisible security. But I think that this idea that an all-female team would be, in my opinion, walking down a street, as much of a visible difference as an all-male team. So I, I'm, I'm a massive advocate for risk profiling first. What does the client need? But then always presenting opportunities to be as diverse in the hiring process as possible. And can you tell us a little bit about starting up Umbra? So by the stage that you start the company in 2015, you've obviously already developed lots of skills and lots of knowledge about the industry. What about starting a business for the first time? How did you take to that? So the business, again, a bit like my, my career, um, was very organic. I knew the moment I did my close protection training that the training that I'd done was going to be, it was a light bulb moment for me. And it was a moment where I, I saw that something could be done differently. And I think having met a lot of founders along the way, I think that's a good enough starting point. But for me, it wasn't about then creating a business plan because I didn't have the, the actual sort of product that I was going to sell in mind. I just knew that there was a different way of presenting private client security and also what we now call secure lifestyle. So the business since 2015 has really evolved through the clients themselves. So I was very lucky that 
the clients that I'd worked with when I worked as the PA chief of staff uh, and, and in that sort of side of my career were very interested by this new approach that I was developing. And this idea of bringing together the best of the industry, whether that's people, whether that's advice, whether that's project management, this idea of a security concierge was born. Um, and so being able to then champion the various parts of the industry, but also hire in a really robust way, um, not just female operatives, but male as well. But it all started with bringing together with the women in the close protection part of the industry. And that for me was the genesis of the idea. And that I, I've, I've tried to keep that as the golden thread throughout the whole growth of the business, because again, and as, as, as I'm sure other business founders, I, I know attest to that you have to be very clear on your why. And for me, it was, it was to champion an industry and it was definitely to make it more accessible. Um, so actually along the way, what we've been inadvertently doing is explaining some of the things that are and have historically been very sort of hard to access or you think the word close protection, a lot of people don't even know that close protection is the term, the, the sort of a correct term for bodyguard, not least of which that we don't just work with clients that need bodyguards we're working with clients that want to keep safe they want to keep their homes safe they want privacy they want to manage their reputation so actually what we've ended up with is a business that has those three pillars to it but along the way that sort of essence of yes being a female founder yes coming through and and, and now the back end we hope of, of a pandemic all of those skills that I learned as a PA I would say layered over with this idea of a different approach to security I think is enabled me to be quite agile and particularly during the, the pandemic the phone didn't stop ringing because a pandemic is a time of crisis and change and that's when your health and safety called into question so it's been really interesting for me to almost press a bit of a reset in the last couple of years but again going back to that core golden thread that as a female founder in the industry we do attract a client that wants to think a little bit differently that wants to think in a more kind of layered and diverse way um, and that doesn't just want the right people around them. They want the right advice and they want the right service providers that are going to help protect them and their families. And so uh, luckily enough, during that last 22 years on the PA side, that is exactly what I was delivering to the clients. And now we just deliver that in a, in a sort of multi-client broader way. So everything that I learned through the preparation, the planning, the if, if you're in a position where you're having to protect a client, then it's gone wrong. That proactive uh, state that we like our clients to be in is what I learned from my training. And so we try to be a business that's not just dealing with things that have gone wrong, because if it's gone wrong, we haven't got in, got in there early enough. So everything about us is, is proactive. We try and reduce that stress for clients, try and get rid of the acronyms, because as we know, and as with a, with a brother in the military, we love an acronym. And I have become a little bit uh, acronymic over the years, only because it's a great way of getting fast paced information uh, out there. But a couple of my clients have started to say, you know, Kate, you really need to drop the Alpha Bravo thing because uh, we don't understand what you're saying. So actually, you can go so far the other way that uh, that people don't understand what you're what you're saying. But yeah, it's been an absolute journey, and certainly one that I have said to those that I've I've met along the way that are setting up their own businesses. Find your wife. If that moment occurs to you where I call it the light bulb moment, but something that you found that's different, something that that you think needs to be done differently or could be done differently. Go into it, explore it. And I've always said, like people say that there's a, 
There's a book inside uh, of everyone. There's a business inside every single human. It's just those that decide to do it have acted on that light bulb moment. I think a very good instinct on dropping the acronyms because we have to more or less span them in the in the newspaper because people don't want an alphabet soup, do they? So I think that's uh, I think that's very wise. You, you mentioned basically that you know something's gone wrong, isn't it? If there's some conflict, if there's a scrap, then there's been a failure somewhere. Have there been any hairy moments for for you or your colleagues? I would always go back to that mantra that you are always looking out for something going wrong before it's gone wrong. That's the hypervigilance side of the role. I think in terms of sort of from an anecdotal perspective, the worst scenarios that I've been in personally have been you know, night scenarios. So nightclubs, bars, where there's noise, where there's a compression of sort of where you would go out in uh, all of those different sort of pinch points, we would say. And I think I can probably pick out two or three of those types of scenarios where you're just more restricted on what you can do and you're having to be much less visible as to how you're you're doing it. And particularly when you're working with younger clients as well, um, and particularly around other people that are uh, drinking. Um, so there's the sort of unpredictable nature as well, which I think has probably been from a, an operational point of view, the most hairy. I think running the business, I'm always concerned for the health and safety of the teams um, and the people that we place. And that's the sort of, that's the most paramount part of the puzzle. And so always very um, diligent in finding out exactly how those individuals are going to be working, where, how, and we're just lucky to have the sort of clients that are going to treat them really well. They've got you know, very high standards of expectation of how their staff are going to be working and therefore there's that reciprocal kind of respect of you're protecting me and my family and therefore we're going to make sure that we do everything we can to make that a sort of a, a, a great working environment if you like. I, I presume in your industry you know discretion is is also one of the key skills so I'm guessing you can't name names in terms of who your clients are but could you just give us a flavour for the type of clients you work for? Of course and um, I think people think that when you say high profile high net worth Yes, you know, we're working with uh, household names and all the rest of it, people that uh, that you would have heard of. But I think, again, going back to the year 2000, this word celebrity was everywhere. And I think now we've we've kind of gotten a bit immune to certainly the sort of the word celebrity can now mean a, a number of different things. But for me, I am inspired by the entrepreneurial captains of industry, those coming into a sort of a, a moment where they're either exiting a business or you know, they've worked super hard over a long period of time and then they're realizing that sort of hard work and going into a, a whole nother era of maybe it's philanthropy, maybe it's the give back. And so so I'm I'm actually really lucky that I think when you set out a business and you are intentional with the sort of clients you want to attract, then, you know, with a bit of luck and a bit of hard work and graft, you do actually start to attract those back. And, and very lucky that a lot of our clients now refer other clients to us. So you then get that sort of similar sort of mindset of clients coming to you. But there's no there's no real typical client. I think a lot of the clients we get when they're in a what we call a reactive state, when things have gone wrong, are in times of vulnerability. So that's the big shift moments that we've all gone through in our lives, such as death of a family member or a divorce or some kind of key life moment. Um, our clients are getting younger, but a lot of our clients are now also um, asking us to help work with even younger clients. So uh, young people perhaps going into to, to and from university because that can be seen as quite a sort of 
uh, a moment where there's a bit of insecurity. And that's not just your household name, high profile, wealthy individual. That's a, a much broader spectrum of clients that just want to make sure that um, the younger members of their family are, are safe. And I think now as, as a result of a lot of the things that we're doing to make the, the sector accessible, we're really broadening out to a lot more of a, a sort of a broader approach from a wide section of society, I would say. A, a lot of the social media accessibility that I'm, I'm really put forward on, it's, it's the weirdest thing that we would publicize our, our discretion. But part of the big thing for me is to make the sector accessible. So a lot of the requests and things that we get through on a daily basis through our LinkedIn, through our Instagram, through Twitter, guides us as to how and where the next generation of clients is coming from. Because you know, I couldn't tell you that there's a particular type and we're not just working with ultra, ultra high net worth individuals. It's much more broadly now across a sort of day to day audience, shall we say. We've spoken about stereotypes and misconceptions, haven't we? And, you know, your experiences as a female bodyguard. What about as a female entrepreneur in a heavily male dominated industry? Have you experienced any discrimination or sexism there? I've always loved being different. And I think the I go on about superpowers a lot. Um, your difference being your superpower. Um, I'm super lucky that I think because I'm inherently collaborative, I think you can kill people with kindness. And so I'm not going to say that my whole last 22 years of my life was just a breeze walking into every room, getting every deal. I probably had the same sort of challenges as anyone, male or female, coming into any sort of pre-post COVID, particularly 2009, 2000. I mean, there's been there's been blips and bumps in terms of the sort of the economics and the trading environment along the way. But I think working alongside lots of people, particularly from a military background, I've actually only taken the positives from that. So when you're working around people that have gone through special forces selection or been in elite parts of um, the Metropolitan Police, for example, I'm, I'm always one that learns from those that are around me. And if I ever have faced any challenges, I, again, it's the Irish Bavarian workhorse. I just find a way around it, James. So, you know, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards those that are supportive and collaborative. And I think, again, a bit like how clients find you and how you find them, you tend to weed out the things that may have possibly caused me uh, a challenge if I'd seen it as such. But much like my um, maneuver now into the boardroom and having had that operational experience and now taking that to the boardroom, I think you can let your own imposter be your worst enemy. And I think the biggest challenges I've ever felt are not necessarily where people have pushed back on me. I've, I've never really felt that. And if I have, then I've always found a way to, um, I, I, I think, use just the EQ, the, the, the people and the uh, relationship skills that I have just had to build to survive in my previous career and now, I think that's the way that I've pushed through that and really, really hard work. I mean, anyone that knows me knows that I love what I do. I'm in my ikigai, my passion, mission, vocation, profession at all times. And it's deeply annoying for those around me because I just can't read something or watch something without taking a note or doing something that will feed back to something that I'm doing or a project that I'm working on. And I think that idea that I would be stopped from doing something has now translated into the next generation. So I'm obsessed with younger people, but also people coming from different industries, transitioning from different industries, coming into the industry. And I think a great way that you can face 
obstacle is by dragging other people into an industry or a mindset with you. Um, and so I've got as many man ambassadors and men who support what I do as I have amazing female colleagues and friends. Um, and I think, again, the proof's in the pudding. If, if you ever get a moment where you're feeling as if you're facing a challenge, things like a LinkedIn testimonial that you look at and you think, my goodness, you know, how far I've come and, and always reminding yourself and having good people around you to say, good job. I think, you know, again, I'm glass three quarters full. So you, you, you won't ever really find me moaning about anything that I've had to overcome because I'll always find a way around it. And that's the stubbornness, I guess, from the, uh, as you know, from the Irish side, James. <laughs> 100% is sometimes a useful skill to have, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you've, speaking of sort of ambition and maybe a bit of stubbornness is helpful here as well. You've expanded into the United States, South Africa and the Middle East, haven't you? How challenging or otherwise is expanding the model internationally? Presumably each nation brings its own sort of unique obstacles or challenges, does it? Or is it a case that actually the, the, the work is quite similar? So it's it, it's a very expandable model. So I think, again, thanks to my um, upbringing, we were always surrounded by friends and colleagues from various parts of the world, right from when I was uh, you know, tiny. Uh, my father was then working internationally in, in engineering. So I've always had a very much an international sort of mindset. When I was growing up, people would say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'd say, I want to work in London. And I think London for me represented that sort of melting pot and, and, and a real sense of, you know, you could walk from one street to another and have a completely different vibe and a different sort of flavor and i think very lucky that actually london with its gmt positioning is uh, you know the center of from a, from a communication point of view we can deal with you know west coast us from london just as much as we can deal with the other side of the world so the the, the expansion into and working with international clients isn't a new thing We've always worked with clients from all parts of the world. I think we were trying to work it out the other day. I think yeah, Antarctic, probably we haven't got uh, yet any clients for, from there. But I, I think being in London and being in Europe, we, we have to remember how lucky we are in terms of that sort of positioning. But for me, when I was developing the business, I've always worked internationally. So all the clients I've worked for, I was always traveling around, um, you know, going around with the teams and, and living in a very sort of open-minded way. And I always say that travel helps the mind un unravel. And before the pandemic, I was regularly traveling to where my clients come from or have other assets or homes. And that for me was the trick of getting to know somebody and know somebody's modus operandi. I was actually seeing them in their you know, natural habitat, if you like. So all of the places that uh, we have clients from happen to be really cool fun places as well so you know growing a business there's no point in doing things that you're not enjoying south africa middle east dubai la new york you know they're not terrible places to uh, to go and see uh, and see clients and some of the partnerships that we've developed particularly with our, our swiss partnership we're very lucky that for a lot of our clients that's their hub as well so we can simply pop over there and see clients from all around the world so it's really important to me with this sort of layered diversity of thinking but also being that inherent rebel that you're not just uni thinking otherwise if you're in one zone when you work with international clients you're missing the full 360 spectrum of what you can do for them it sounds like you're having a lot of fun as well as working very hard you're six years into the business now Kate what are your long-term plans for the company a bit like friends who have children it's funny when you have a business um no one sort of talks to you in a static way it's always what's next Hey, what's happening in the future, um, which is at once exciting, but I also want to enjoy the journey. I've, I've had a very, very full on couple of years over this, this pandemic. And I think 
we've we've we're very proudly 100% owned no outside investment in the business which is quite a, you know no mean feat in these these times um and i think particularly over the last two years i've had some time to talk to some of our collaborators some of the larger entities uh, we always think of ourselves as a bit of a, a david versus goliath and I like to surround myself with brilliant brains anyway within my network. So there's been some interesting discussions about what could happen next. And I also work in decades. So for me, I, I'm in seven years, I'm 50, which is a good metric for me. I, I often like to see where I'm at in the in the sort of a 10 year cycle. Um, so we're having some interesting discussions at the moment as to what that moment looks like and how the business will develop along the way, um, how next year will start to pan out. We've got a few new products and and, and approaches that we're, we're um, testing at the moment with some of our clients. Layering technology over a business like ours as well is also a really exciting possibility. There are parts of the business like our projects that we uh, invest our time and energy in, particularly bringing sports people into the security industry that I think are worth investing in. We're not, we're not a security or a secure lifestyle company. We're a business of impact. Um, so we're attracting the sort of interest from the, the kind of people that AI love spending time with and hearing how they've developed their business, but they're also the reciprocity of maybe opening a, a, a their wallets. But I think when you take investment, people sort of think, grow a business, take investment, see you later, next thing. I, I, I'm, I'm not that person, but I'm also not, Umbra is my baby and I have to keep it in the way it is. I'm very open to all the discussions that we're having at the moment. And I think it's a really exciting place to be in, particularly where I've got my portfolio of the, the sort of the board career path developing as well. As you've quite rightly said, I've got to enjoy what I'm doing. I've got to enjoy the people around me. My, my bless my poor team. My, my team are incredible and I couldn't have done this without them. So I want them to guide this journey as well. We have a real kind of uh, umbra way ethos that we all adhere to which is you know one team one dream and i'll run everything by them it's very flat it's very entrepreneurial i like to think so i would i would also want their their sort of feedback as to how we grow and develop as well so watch this space and to what extent do your personal finances come into the decision about what happens next for the business and do you take professional advice about your personal finances along the way as you're as you're growing the company Again, going back to, um, I, I think, a, a sort of hangover of my father's upbringing was very, very much about how we structure our finances and that independence. And it didn't matter that it was my brothers he was talking to or me and my sister he was talking to. Um, so for me, having my own stability, my own security, being able to buy my first place in, in, uh, in London when I was you know, earlier in my career was something that was just, I had to work for it. I didn't get any handout support other than the fact that I knew that I could go back for a Sunday race every Sunday and get some advice as to you know, how to save more money rather than spend it. So over the years, again, working with the sort of advisors that I've worked with around my clients, I've, I, I feel very blessed that I've, I've worked alongside some amazing brains that have taught and told me how to put pockets of money into different sort of from investing at an early age to looking at a pension. And, you know, I, I was reading about the pension, um, the gender pension gap. I just can't believe we're in 2022 and still having these conversations. We're still trying to um, create that parity for, for what is now 51% of the UK population that's female. I, I really think that there's there's more that certainly I want to do to to address this. And, and as I'm talking to the younger generation, start to say, Listen, you know, it wasn't the sexiest thing that you could talk about when you're 21, 22, but actually here's what happens when you're an old person like me, if you start having those conversations at that sort of age. So 
I think what I perhaps lacked in um, uh, and the accessibility of the information which is out there now, there's no there's no excuse. You can go, hop onto Instagram, you can speak to and uh, connect with a lot of people with a lot of good ideas. And I think for me and the, my female business founder community particularly, I think it's been really important to open your horizons to what is possible because I think a lot of my female founder friends have been limited in what they think they can achieve and perhaps seen outside investment as a scarier prospect or perhaps not thought bigger picture. And it was a coach that said to me, what's the wildest dream that you would have for your business? And, you know, I wouldn't have said, I want to sell it and I want to make you know a large personal fortune because that's what my clients do. But it was only when this business coach said to me about my own business that then I saw my own personal finances as completely separate to the business but also that at that 50 year moment, where am I sat? What am I doing? Who am I with? Who's my crew? What have we achieved? And those sort of conversations, particularly when you've been growing and running a business through a time like this are incredibly mind opening and altering because you then start to attract the kind of conversations that will then lead you there. I'd say I'm quite pragmatic. I like taking risks in terms of um, looking at different kind of asset classes and looking at um, my own I don't know, investment appetite in a, in a very sort of broad way, because I guess as my career has shown you, you know, I, I think of things over the bonnet, above the bonnet, and always thinking about different ways that I can protect myself, my future, and not rely on somebody else. And I think there's a lot more acceptance that you might have to look after oneself, both male and female. And I think that can be a really good thing. It can be a really good driver. And I think it could also be something that does unlock that business within everybody, that business that lies within, because if you're not getting what you need and want out of your day job, then there is something that you can do about that. And I think it's much more acceptable, both in terms of entrepreneurship in organizations, but also entrepreneurship for your own self to be able to, to, to supplement your income and look at different ways that you want to have that end goal and looking at that sort of, when do you want to retire? No one said to me, think about the age you want to retire until recently. And, and that was a real moment where I thought, God, if someone had said that to me at 22, I may well have put slightly more in as a monthly piece on, on a pension or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I like to think I'm a, I, you know, I also like living for the moment. I like, I like to reward myself. I like to also, I like to think I'm, I'm pretty generous to those around me. And I think generosity is something again, that reciprocates. And if you're able to give good experiences and be very thoughtful and mindful, and as we are with our wider community, we have a thing called thankful Friday. So everyone comes to the table with somebody in the business that they want to thank or send something to and the reason for it. I think that that way of not seeing wealth as something that you accumulate and you keep very close to you, but it's something that you, you let go. And I learned that actually from the amazing Dame Stephanie Shirley. She, she made her fortune. She's giving it all away. So I'd like to think of myself as someone that would be able to be giving away as I'm, as I'm growing the business and, and giving away as as and when and if uh, there's a, a bigger moment ahead for me. Well, I think that's really interesting and commendable that you thought about that in such detail, because I'm always surprised by the number of entrepreneurs that I speak to who kind of admit that they haven't spoken about or even thought about it in much detail about what they're going to do on the other side of their business. And then it all comes as a bit of a shock, maybe when an offer comes in or they have to start thinking about retirement. So I think that's fantastic that, that, that you've thought about that in so much detail. Um, thanks for being such a fascinating guest. And I, I wish you all the best of luck with the business. Thank you, James. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me and explaining how you built your business. Next time, we're going from bodyguards to influencers 
I'll be back chatting to Nick Cook, co-founder of GOAT, a global social media marketing agency powered by influencers. The biggest influencer in the world right now is probably a guy called Mr. Beast, who's a YouTuber. And the truth is, a brand paid north of six million pounds for that one spot, and it's the best media value of the year. You compare it to a Super Bowl spot, it's far more effective, far, far more trackable. And I'm still shocked at the numbers. They just get bigger and bigger year on year. Make sure you're following the Entrepreneur's Chat so you're always notified when a new episode is available. Until next time, goodbye. Does running a business leave little time for managing your personal financial affairs? At Climate Hambros, we know how to simplify life's financial challenges for entrepreneurs. Considering your personal and business ambitions, we partner with you at every stage of your life, taking care of your finances so you can focus on what matters most to you. Find out more about how we can help create a secure financial future for you and your family at climatehambros.com.